First Timothy chapter one. This is probably my favorite passage in the Bible. Um, I know I say this about a lot of passages, but if there's one passage where my heart and my mind come back to again and again and again, it's always going to be First Timothy one, verses fifteen through seventeen. If I were ever asked to preach randomly, I would open up to First Timothy one, verses fifteen through seventeen. If I knew it was going to be my last sermon somewhere, it's going to be 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17. When I die one day and my family is planning the service, the pastor must preach on 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17. So let me read these words and see what the Lord have for us here. Actually beginning in verse 12 for some context. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy. And deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages immortal and visible the only God be honor and glory Forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word, we ask that you give us insight. Pray, Lord, that you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, wills to obey. Lord, we ask that you would encourage us to continue to walk the straight and narrow. Pray this for the name and the sake of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. A quick Google search will tell you that there's approximately 30 trillion words on the internet. 30 trillion words. I tried doing some research about how many words there were 10 years ago and 20 years ago, but I couldn't find anything. And and that's like a, a like a lowball guess. 30 trillion words. And I, and I and I share that with you because. It's very clear that we live in a day and age where we are constantly exposed to ideas, to the 24-hour news cycle, to social media, constantly bombarding us with, this is how you should live. This is what you need to know. This is what is important. Constantly before us. I mean, there is no shortage of ink being shed about every single issue in the world. Sometimes I think people are giving me more praise than I deserve, but they tell me that I should write a book. And I say to them, I honestly do not believe that there is anything in Christendom that hasn't already been written about 10 times over. And to think that I could say it better than Kevin DeYoung or D.A. Carson is just fool's gold, right? But there's so much out there. And it's funny, like I was telling some of you guys earlier this week when we were hanging out, 
when I was in high school, I was so uninformed about politics. I like would probably be able to tell you who the president was, but it was probably doubtful that I knew who the vice president was. Mm-hmm. I did not under care about the issues, care about what was happening. I was living my own little 16-year-old life, worrying about getting my license and talking to two girls named Amy or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense in which I look at you guys sometimes, and, and I'm not saying everyone is like this, but I look at these young people who are so political, who are so ingrained with all the current events and all, and, and there's, there's, there's good in that, but there's a sense also in which we are so constantly being swayed back and forth. Believe this, have this stance on this. Make sure that you think this way about this particular topic. And sometimes it's hard with all of the noise in the world that we live in to know what really should stand above all of that. What is the message? What are the words that really turn down the noise to the rest of the world and bring us back to a proper orientation to life and to reality? So if you're here last week, we we looked at one of my other favorite passages in the New Testament, Hebrews 12, where since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Let us throw aside the sin that so easily entangles. And what should we do? Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And I I gave this illustration, and I want to use it again tonight because I think it's such such a good illustration. But imagine you are in a dark garage, and you're trying to find your way out. And you can't tell which way is right or left, up or down. You are so disoriented. You are fumbling your way through. You are falling down. And there are sharp objects and tools and boxes in your way. And you are wandering around aimlessly. And what happens? Someone cracks the door just half an inch. And that little beam of light comes racing through into the room. And what does it do? It reorients you. It tells you where you need to go. And the more that door opens and the more the light shines into the darkness, we get the information and the ability to walk and live as we should. And so with all of the 30 trillion words that are accessed right here on our phones, all of the messages we hear, with all of the movies, the entertainment, what really is the light that gives us proper orientation to how we should walk and to how we should live? You should never be surprised that the answer is always the same. It's the gospel. It's Christ. And the reason why this passage is so near and dear to my heart, and this is why you know, as you graduate and senior, you're leaving. The last thing I would want you to leave is not make sure, by the way, to do this. Hey, don't forget this. Hey, if you really want to be successful in the world, work hard. Oh, there's a lot of wisdom we could share with all of you. But the most important thing is always the gospel. 
And these little verses, verses 15 through 17, give us the gospel in a nutshell. The gospel in a nutshell. And so I'm going to just go through these three verses and summarize the gospel in two things, okay? And to make it very simple, I'm going to give you two words. The first word is this, salvation. What is the gospel? It is salvation. Do me a favor, look down in your Bibles. Verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, I, I don't think Timothy had to deal with the 30 trillion words that we have to deal with. But I love how Paul begins his first point. Hey, Timothy, you're going to hear a lot of things in life, and I'm going to tell you a lot of things in life, but what I'm about to say you need to pay attention. When Paul mentions this phrase, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In essence, what he's doing is he's making you lean in. It's like your parents, you know, they're telling you and you're not really listening. They say, hey, listen. And it kind of snaps you back to reality, right? When when someone, like, you know, a lot of people make fun of me when I preach because I I say, hey guys, listen, 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 right? What am I about to do? Well, in my mind, I'm about to say something that's really important. Whether it's important to you, I don't know. But listen, 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 listen. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. And he has four other phrases like this in the pastoral epistles. And this is the very first one. He's like, Timothy, what I'm about to say is really, really, really important. And what is it? Christ Jesus came into the world to what? Say it. Save sinners. First point is salvation. To be saved. There's a lot of things that we can learn from Jesus. There's so many ethics from Jesus, how he lived his life. Every politician, whether they're Christians or not, will talk about the golden rule. People who aren't religious at all will say that their most influential book to them is the Bible. I think they lie. They don't mean that. But it's very clear that Jesus stands as a symbolic person of someone who has learned to help other humans treat their fellow humans. And what can begin to happen is that Jesus instead of being our savior, instead of being our substitute, really just becomes someone who gives good advice. Someone who is a life coach. Someone who's just a really good teacher and can summarize a lot of how we should live our lives. But what Paul is trying to tell us is this. Jesus did not leave the glory of heaven to become a man primarily so that you can live a better life here. Jesus did not die on the cross just so that you can have better temporal circumstances. He did not come primarily just to be an example, although he is an example. He did not come just to give you more therapeutic value to your life or just to make you feel a little less insecure. 
His mission is far greater than any problem that you can conceive on your own. His mission was primarily this, to save you from your sin. To save you. We have a lot of problems in life. We have a lot of problems in our community, in our families, in our individual lives. The biggest one right now is COVID, community speaking. It's just a mess. It's just a mess. This passage is telling you that that's not your biggest problem, though. Some of you have some pretty hard home situations you're dealing with. There's a lot of drama. Maybe the, the relationship with the parentals isn't as great as it should be. Maybe it's just really unfortunate what is happening in your home. That is not your biggest problem. Some of you are, are just dealing with a world of anxiety, a world of depression, a lot of personal issues. That's not your biggest problem. They are problems. And they, they need solutions. But they're not your biggest problems. So what this passage is teaching us and, and what it's orienting us to is that your biggest problem is that you need to be saved from your sins. Because the consequences of not being saved from your sins are far greater than any of the issues and the problems that you currently are facing. You see, guys, listen. If Jesus thought that our biggest problem was to have better economic success, he would have come and give us great economics. If your biggest problem in Jesus' mind was just that everyone lives a healthy life and they have no sickness or disease anymore, and they live to the ripe old age of 94 and peacefully die in their hammock, maybe he would have given us better medicine. Or if your biggest problem was just friendships and relationships, he would have taught us how to be the best friend. But, but no, Jesus understood something in his mission, that your biggest problem is always your sin. So Paul here gives us an example of what does it mean to really believe and trust in the gospel. So he says here, look down at verse 15 again, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. Now, Paul here is towards the end of his life. It's not like he immediately got saved and had this title on himself that I am the worst sinner I know. But as Paul grew in his understanding of grace, as he grew in his understanding of the person of Jesus, here is one thing that he became convinced of. I by far am the worst sinner that I know. He, he says it, right? Look it down with me again at verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, right? I killed Christians. I was the religious terrorist. But I received mercy. This first point, guys, I mean, the implications are large. There's just so many of them here. Let me give you a few. If your biggest problem is not your temporal circumstances, but it is your sin, 
What you need then is humility. It is humility to recognize that I in and of myself am helpless apart from the grace and the mercy of Christ. One of the the hard things about being a pastor or parent is to watch people who once confessed Christ walk away from the faith. It's hard. There's no way. There's no way of saying it. And sometimes you can see the writing on the wall. Sometimes it just hits you out of nowhere. And let me just tell you something. The temptation to fake your way through this stuff is great and large. But if you want a sure sign that you understand what Paul is saying here on this first point, that the gospel is about being saved from your sin, here's what begins to happen. That you become more and more and more convinced of your sinfulness and your need for mercy. You see, the religious person is always going to compare their righteousness and their holiness to other people. But here's the thing. When the light of the gospel begins to shine on your dark hearts, here's what you become convinced of. I am the worst sinner I know. You could put any person in a prison next to me. You could put any person who has done far greater things. And here's what I'm convinced of. I am a sinner who Christ came to die for. Another thing, too, that I, I, I look at this passage and I think about is, is this is what unifies us together. You know, as a youth group, it's really easy and I'm grateful for this, that we only gather together because of our friendships. That it's really common for young people to want to find community and relationships. And and sometimes, unfortunately, it could be kind of like the jocks hang out over here, the band kids hang out over here, and yet you have your Christian kind of group over here. And when you're an adult, it kind of sometimes seems that, that churches gather together more because they are all of the same political persuasion or because they're all of the same socioeconomic background or whatever thing they have in common. That's really what unifies them. But what should unify us in this group is is not because we go to the same schools or because we like hanging out with each other, which is all good things. But it's because we all gather around the very fact that I am a sinner who is saved by grace. To you you seniors, I hope and pray that you would always understand the importance of the local church. That you wouldn't be naive or ignorant or lazy enough to think that you could get on with Christ without other people who know this very same truth. First point, salvation. Second point is this, response. Response. 
So after he lays the groundwork of what the gospel is, that Christ did not come to just be a social justice warrior, that he did not just come to be our example, but he came primarily to be our substitute, to die on the cross for our sins, Paul goes on to talk a little bit about his story. And in his story, he shows us how we respond to what Jesus has done. Look at verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. You know, Paul here is unique in a way. I'm not going to say that we all can resonate with Paul's story. Because I don't know how many of you used to have a background where you would kill Christians. <laughs> right? How many of you can say the things that Paul has said? Some of you are like, yo, man, like, I grew up in a Christian home. I've heard about Jesus since like, I was in my mother's womb. And, and I've always believed this. And that's why I think it's a little harder to get that first point to feeling that you are the worst sinner you know. But I want to be clear that regardless if you have had a life full of sin or if you've lived a pretty, you've kept that line, you haven't done a whole lot of bad things, every single person becomes a sign and a testimony to the mercy of Christ. You know, my testimony is, is similar to what I just said a minute ago. Uh, my parents became Christians January of 1989. My dad came out of a functional drug addict uh, lifestyle where he, he kept a job and he paid the bills, but he was tied to the power of his sin and, and, and used hard drugs frequently. And the Lord revealed himself to my dad and they responded to the gospel and four months later I was born. I was born to parents who had just met Jesus a couple months before and I went to church my entire life. I went to Awana. I did the church plays. I, I did all of the youth group stuff and I remember in the age of five or six saying a prayer, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I want to go to heaven. And whether or not I was saved right then when I said that prayer or, or a few years later, I don't really know. But all I know is that eventually, I kind of, maybe 10, 11 years old, really kind of began this wrestling with God where I felt as if God was always mad at me every single time I sinned. It's like God was like putting me on time out. I didn't make matters any better because I... Rarely paid attention, always broke the rules, lied, swore like a sailor as a fourth grader, and didn't act much like a Christian at all. But this, this pressing on my heart constantly, thinking that God was upset with me, and always feeling like I could never do enough to assuage this feeling that God was kind of folding his arms towards me. I don't know if it was when I finally became a Christian or when maybe just the light bulb clicked a little deeper. But I remember hearing the words from the pastor, from the word, that when you sin, God doesn't throw the flag. 
He doesn't blow the whistle. He doesn't point his finger like a referee. But he leans in all the more because Christ has truly taken the penalty for your sin. It finally like clicked. It finally made sense. And, and, and back then in my church, you know, they would have you kind of raise your hand during a prayer if you, and, and I had already been baptized. I said, like, let's you know how far I've gone into the church world. I've already been baptized and I raised my hand. I want Jesus. You see, as, as a Christian kid, I have a testimony. Here's what I can tell people. I don't, I don't know when Christ saved me, but here's what I do know. To quote the famous words of John Newton, that I was a great sinner. Christ is a great savior. That's all I knew. I was a sinner. I deserved judgment, but Christ took my penalty. And that's what Paul is saying. And in his example, here's what he says. That to those who were to believe in him would have eternal life. Faith is the response. Faith is always the response. The response to the Christian life is never to say to yourself, I'm just going to try harder starting Monday. You know, maybe, maybe you struggle with not praying. Maybe you find yourself rarely reading the word. Maybe you find yourself in a habitual sin that keeps coming back no matter how hard you try. And you say to yourself, I'm going to really start trying tomorrow. I'll die and start on Mondays, right? Hey, I'm really going to get after this sin. I'm going to try harder. For the Christian, the response is never I'm just going to try harder. It is always faith. It is trusting the promises. It is walking by the Spirit. I'm not saying that you don't do anything, but I'm saying we rest in the power of God. And because of the faith of the gospel, here's what Paul says. Eternal life. You guys, listen. This stuff that we do every Sunday is not just games. It's not just us kind of like trying to give Aaron something to do with his life and give me a job, right? As much as I I love going to uh, camps and mission trips and and hanging out with you guys at Starbucks, like to be completely honest, if this stuff wasn't real, I wouldn't be doing this. This is not just something that we have a phase in our life and then we kind of grow up and one day just slowly drift away from it. No, no, no. Paul is serious. There are consequences to not believing in the gospel. The consequences of not recognizing your sin and turning to Christ in faith are eternal judgment, a Christless eternity. You see, and this is, this is why I love this passage so much, this next verse. Because again, if you want a sign, if you want to be assured that you truly get the gospel, let me just tell you really quickly. Here's what always happens when someone truly understands that they are a 
horrible, wretched sinner, but they have been saved by the mercy of Christ. Here's what happens. Look at verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The true sign that someone has Christ is their heart immediately turns to praise. Is their heart is always swollen with gratitude. You know, it's like Paul here. He's recounting his story and he's getting choked up. And he's recalling what he used to be like. And he's, recall, he's recalling like Christ came, Timothy, Christ came to save sinners like me. And that, that, that Christ would use me as an example to those who else might believe and receive mercy and eternal life. And he said he can't even help himself. And he, and he jumps into doxology, big word for meaning to praise. He says, this Christ, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. It's, it's almost as if the natural overflow of someone who truly understands grace is I just want to sing about Christ. It is why hymns always say it best. And I, I wear a t-shirt that says, Save the Hymns. It's my favorite shirt, right? It's not, it's not because I think modern songs are always bad. I just think by, by and large they are. Every once in a while there's some good modern songs. But, but why do I care so much about wanting to sing theological songs? Why do I care that we always come back to the Word It's because when you truly become a Christian, here's where all of your priorities and all of your interests go towards. You ready for it? Here it is. Listen, listen. That your life may be a vessel to bring glory and honor to your Savior, Jesus. The name on your head is always Christ. Who do you serve? You serve Christ, your King. And there's a sense in which the heart that naturally understands what we deserved, but what we have now in Christ, wants to sing, wants to bring honor and glory to Christ. This can't be manufactured. No one could stick a gun to someone's head and make them rejoice in the salvation that they have. There's a lot of words in this life. There's a lot of people telling you what to think and what to do and what to believe. But here is a trustworthy saying that is deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like us. Come to him. Believe in him. Trust in him. Obey him. Love him. Truly love him. He is greater than you will ever know. He is more worthy than you will ever know. He has done more great things than you will ever know. He loves you more than you will ever know. Let's pray. Father, now I pray that you would 
bear fruit to the seeds of faith that have been planted. Father, we know that it is your word that does the work. And, and Lord, I am grateful in my heart for the fruit of faith that I've seen in Leah and Alyssa and Haley and Emma and, and so many others and Tessa and Bethany. And Father, I pray that it would be your word that continues to build them up they may be faithful servants of the Lord Jesus. God, I pray that you would give us new songs to sing. God, songs where we lift up and we glorify Christ and who he is and what he has done for us, Lord. And Father, I, I ultimately pray that of all the things we hear in life, the greatest thing that we always hear is your great love for us in Christ. Lord, thank you that you saved us from the greatest problem that we had sin. And so, Father, we pray now that the rest of this night we would continue to live in this spirit, live in this moment in which we desire to honor and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.